Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be finishing out that chapter as we move into chapter 5 today. And for most of chapter 4, as we come to this conclusion of chapter 4, most of chapter 4 has been all about building the church and making sure that the church grows in maturity and strength and glory in the sight of Christ as we all imitate Christ and as we've all been redeemed by Christ. And my title of my sermon today is A Church Built on Angry, Forgiving Love. I know intense, right? And as we take a look at, at this last section of scripture, don't lose sight of everything that has been the continuous thought of Paul through this, through this whole section. As we look back in chapter 4, he begins with saying to us, make every effort to maintain this unity that God has given us here as we've all been entered into Christ together. And then he goes on to talk about, and Christ ascended on high. Why? So that he could then send gifts to make sure that we are continually built up to be who it is that we are always meant to be in Jesus Christ. As we not only reach unity, but we reach the full mature stature of Christ as the body of Christ. And, and then he then goes on to say, when this happens... It happens as we grow together, as each part does its work. And then Phil brought us through last week just a, a brilliant lesson on, on who it was that we were before and who it is that we are now. And given the really provocative distinction between that before and that after picture, how much more then should we realize what it is that we get to do to build the body of Christ since we are all each individually so radically, wonderfully different? And now as we kind of get after this, this working of putting off our old self and putting on the new, he, he then gives us some practicals on how it is that we go about this, Paul does, to the Ephesian church and also to us. And so, and in verse 25 is where I'll begin. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. He's saying that because just a couple of verses earlier, he said, put off your old self. And then, and then right after that, put on the new self, created to be like, and, and this would almost seem like megalomaniac talk if it weren't in the scriptures. Created to be like God. Wow, like that's, that's what we're called to. Talk about a high standard. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So put off the old self, put on the new. The new is something pretty fantastic. Matter of fact, couldn't get any higher. And now let's, let's look at it where the rubber doesn't just meet the sky with those concepts, but now the rubber meets the road where he says, this is what it looks like to then to put off and to put on. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And, and how true is that? How is it that you can have any sort of real relationship with anyone if any part of you wonders, are they actually speaking the truth to me right now? Whether that is because of flattery on their part, or whether it's because of hiding in the dark, because of things that they're, they're trying to kind of disclose. Either way, whatever the cause is, that we're not actually laying forth reality. And by the way, in the Bible, you can always substitute the word truth for reality. Aletheia is the same idea, same, same, same concept. So if I'm not conveying reality, when I tell you about my day, 
well, then I'm not actually speaking the truth to you or, or, or in love. But until we're, we're really okay with the truth and not having to shade it because we're wondering about what anybody would think of us, we'll never know what it is to be the body of Christ. And it's why it's so paramount for us, too, to make sure that all of this is in this like incubator of love and grace. So that I can tell you, just as Aaron did a moment ago, hey, here's the bump that I had with my wife. Just, you know, five minutes before I came up here to give you this communion. Uh, it, w- w- that we can actually be transparent and, and real and, and realize that in doing so, there's not a newspaper that's going to come and hit me on the nose. But, but rather real and terrific encouragement that's going to make sure that I don't kind of stay steeped in my mess. But, but also guides me towards the glory of where it is that I was always meant to be as a child of God. This has got to be the atmosphere that we really do cultivate within this body and to accept accept and expect nothing less, nothing less than a a gracious Petri dish where truth can really flourish. Okay, moving on. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And now something really interesting, he says. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. I will explain this. Now, last time I said I would explain what does it mean that he ascended and he descended. And maybe I didn't do a great job on that. But today, I promise you, as much as you were disappointed in my whole ascended, descended thing, you will not be disappointed today in in what what it really is being talked about here. In your anger, do not sin. But moving on. Anyone who has been stealing, oh, uh, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something. uh, uh, Yeah, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Interesting. Even when he gives an example here. That why, why repentance? Well, repentance, because we all need to be building up the body of Christ. We all need to be pulling our own weight. We all need to be contributing. Nobody should be sitting back as a passenger in this body of Christ, but rather completely engaged. Again, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up. No smack talk. No, no, no. Well, sarcasm, if it's not for building others up. For some of us, sarcasm is a love language, brothers. Uh, But but again, see the theme that keeps running through this. It's all about the common good, building up the glorious body of Christ. And if that's not the, the overarching concern for all of us, but rather, how can my needs get met? How can I, in my entitlement, get my own? Well, then we've completely missed the mark and we'll never know the joy in aligning ourselves with Christ and his purposes. Do not let anyone unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us 
and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so how are we given the direction here to build up the body of Christ? Well, we're to be a church built through angry, forgiving love. As odd as that that whole phrase seems. And part of the reason that that phrase hits you with a bit of discordance right now is because of angry, right? You think, oh, forgiving love. Yeah, I'm I'm on that. But what do you mean angry, forgiving love? I've got three main concepts I want to look at today as we're the body of Christ. One is that we should be angry like Jesus. We should be forgiving like Jesus. And we should be loving like Jesus. Now, let me let me hit this first one. Angry like Jesus. Now, we've got this phrase here. In your anger, do not sin. And do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. The ESV, the King James, you you pick most of the more literal translations, have basically the real thrust of the verb. Uh, The the verb here, not only in in Psalm 4, where Paul is quoting, but the verb here in Ephesians 4 is the imperative or a command. It is be angry, get angry. Have anger. Anger it on up is, is the idea with the force of that verb that is there. There's no escaping that that's the case. And for most of us, though, when we think of this phrase, in your anger, do not sin and do not let the sun go down on the cause of your anger. That was probably a, a, a verse that Aaron was thinking of last night, right? Where he's thinking, hey, honey, we can't go to bed angry. Probably quoted that at some point. And you know what? You applied wrong exegesis, my friend. (laughs) And I'm glad you didn't go to bed angry, but that's not what this passage is talking about. In your anger, do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, the, the, The idea of sun is not the end of the day here, and it's not like, hey, make sure that kind of all of your kind of anger affairs are, are kind of put to rest and that you have peace again in your soul with one another before the end of the day. No, we think of it that way, but in the first century, the only kind of light source that you had besides a little oil candle was the penetrating light of the sun. And the sun always was this idea of light, exposing, penetrating light. And interesting, the NET translates this, the New English translation says, be angry and do not sin. And then it says this, and do not let the sun go down on the cause of your anger. What, what is that? Well, that means that the penetrating light is trying to expose the reason that you've got some indignation going on in, in your heart. And it, it, there's uh, more, more than a, a few pretty good grammatical studies. One, one fellow by the name of Daniel Wallace, who, who wrote the Intermediate Greek Grammar, uh, does a really thorough job with this verse and, and helps to, to bring all of this to light. Uh, but one of, the, one of the verses that is, is very helpful in the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament is the kind of the uh, apocryphal books, which would have been very familiar to Paul and to his audience. They, they weren't like, whoa, those are voodoo books. Keep them away. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, they didn't regard kind of the, the book so much as you're in or you're out. Like we have the New Testament, you're in or you're out. You're either the 27 books, you're in or you're out. But in the Old Testament, it was more like circles of, let's call it usefulness or effectiveness. And at the heart of it was the law. 
Matter of fact, go ahead and memorize that law. Good job, bar mitzvah's coming. And then after that would then, would, would then be the prophets and then the writings. And then outside of the writings would be even the later writings. Those later writings would, would have been what were in the Septuagint. It would be for us like, you know, maybe a book like Mere Christianity. It's very useful. We don't regard it as inspired, but, it, but it's very useful. Uh, and, and so it's, it's one that, that helps us quite a bit. Uh, again, likewise, the Septuagint would have been regarded to, to some in that way. But here's, here's a verse from the Septuagint in a, uh, a collection of works called the Psalms of Solomon. And in uh, chapter 8, it says, God exposed their sins before the sun. Therefore, all the earth knew the righteous judgments of God. The sins that they committed in secret in underground places brought about his, provo- his, his provocation or, or God's uh, indignation as a result of that. It's the same idea that, that Psalm 4 quotes about. And it's the same idea that Paul is trying to bring about so that we don't give the devil a foothold. If, if I am provoked to a righteous anger because I see Coleman, my, my brother in Christ, engaging in something where, you know, my spidey sense is suddenly, you know, going off and the alarm is like, wah, 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 danger, danger. I, I mean, w- what do I do in that case? Do I, do I just think, ah, uh, you know what, Here, here's hoping it all goes well for you. God forbid, right? I need to really be a loving brother to, to Coleman in, in such a circumstance. Uh, and in, to try to figure out what's going on there and bring the exposing light of, of God's word to bear in, in that situation. But we, we sometimes think, well, anger is, anger is always bad. Anger is not always bad. God gets angry. Jesus gets angry. Now, James does say man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. And we need to be very careful with our anger because anger is essentially destructive. It is a destructive force. But sometimes some things need to be destroyed in the name of Jesus. And so if we recognize a perilous path of our brother or sister and we just think, oh, who am I to intervene? Is that, you know, maybe I'm going to come across judgmental. Well, are you not to judge your brother? <laughs> you know, for, Paul tells us. We, we need to be in there. We, we need to engage. And for us to not engage is, is quite frightening. But we need to engage with care because what we begin to wield when we allow our anger to, to be able to be pointed in any situation is a destructive force. And so we've got to be careful that in such a case, I am destroying the cause of my indignation in Coleman and not tearing him down in the process. Because the church is built by this anger. But it is very selective and it is very careful. It is something with which you need to be very careful because of the destructive force that anger really does wield. And, you know, in fact, if you don't get angry at certain things, if there's not that kind of zeal in you, then you're really a rather uninteresting person. And you're not like Jesus. Hey, it's all copacetic. Que sera, sera. Well, how is that going to help me when I'm in a tight spot? And I praise God that when, when I was a single brother living up in Baltimore, and I had some darkness, and I had some schemes that were brewing in the dark, that my brothers who had the, the Holy Spirit's spidey sense tingling didn't just say, ah, you know what? God's sovereign. He'll work it out. 
Well, yeah, he's going to work it out through them, apparently, because those brothers came over every day. And, and as they knew that I did not want to engage in anything, Jesus uh, would, would, would grab me by the hand saying, come on, we're just going to pray. and We're going to pray through whatever it is that's on our hearts right now. And, and I remember, you know, I had this green carpeting in my, my living room and in those brothers and, you know, down on that, that ground. And I'm like, oh, back at this green carpeting again with, with, with these guys that are relentless. Oh. And, and as much as I, I really, really dreaded it, my goodness, those guys are the guys that, that, that I thank and love dearly. Those were the groomsmen in my wedding. Those were the guys that, that really had my back. I praise God for that kind of love that they had. Why? Because they did not destroy me. But you know what they did? They destroyed my darkness, my scheming, and my sin in, in the process. You know, che Guevara once said, If you tremble with indignation at every injustice, then you are a comrade of mine. There's a little bit of Jesus in that. In, in Mark 11, when Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, if we were there, I think we would have been like, whoa, what storm just blew through here? What destructive force just cut a swath through the very temple courts? And it was... Jesus. Jesus and indignation. But here's what's interesting. The Bible actually made accommodation in the book of Numbers so that you could sell pigeons and sacrifices and make change for, for the temple so that you could pay the temple tax. And we might have thought, well, I mean, you know, the Bible kind of makes allowances for this. Well, why, why is Jesus kind of getting so riled up with this thing? Why? Because where they decided to do it out of expediency and convenience for those that were coming to either be able to access the sacrifice or change the money was for their convenience. And what it had done was pushed out a place of prayer for the Gentiles and for the women. And so the women court and the Gentile court were, were suddenly supplanted by this supposed case of, of expediency. We may not have noticed it, but here's the beauty of Jesus that even in the subtleties, he even gets his ire up. Why? For the sake of righteousness, for the, for the sake of God. Now, do, do we likewise have that sort of sensitivity? Not that we're ready to kind of, you know, go, go on a, a, a bash and trash expedition on, on Coleman, uh, on him as a person, but, but that we're like, you know what? Coleman is a redeemed young man in Christ. This is not God's will for his life. And God has seen fit to allow me to actually be, be witness to something. And, and even if I'm not a direct witness, to realize that there's something amiss, askew right now. My goodness, I need to go in. I need to go in for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of my brother whom I love. To actually be provoked to anger, righteous anger, and do nothing about it. Well, then guess what we're doing? We're aligning ourselves with Satan. We are giving the devil a foothold. If we want to get serious about being the body of Christ, if we want to go into this next chapter of who we are as the Hampton Roads Church, where everybody pulls their own weight, everybody's engaged, everybody's on a path of progress towards the image of Christ. Nobody has settled in to, to some sort of malaise, which is, is not in any way God's will for any one of us sitting here. If we want to get to that very place, well, then we all need to click in and be like Jesus in this regard. 
In Mark 3, it's interesting, he's in the temple, and as he's in the temple, he's getting ready on a Sabbath day to heal a man with a shriveled hand. And as he's about to do so, he looks around and he sees all the Bible scholars and religious leaders and and Pharisees looking at him like a hawk because they're waiting to accuse him of violating the Sabbath. And as they're all waiting to kind of jump on him, it says Jesus was aroused to anger. Why? Not, Not because they were looking to accuse him, but because of their own legalities and their systems of of law and interpretation, they were keeping this man from being released from the bondage of his disability. And they cared more about their rules than they did about the deliverance of that man. And what was the result in Jesus? Anger burned within him. Not at them, but, but to destroy what it was that was set up that was keeping God's glory from really being able to shine forth. Now, we got to be careful in in all of this, of course, because it's very easy to get angry and say, I'm just being like Jesus. Sure you are. (laughs) You notice Jesus really didn't have that kind of anger when it was his own imposition, when it was his own injustice, when they brought those false accusations against him, there was no anger at that point. And here's where my anger often really seems to rear its ugly head. When you inconvenience me. When my children inconvenience me. When Debbie inconveniences me. When whoever it is that is so indifferent behind that Burger King counter inconveniences me. Right? That's and, and what am I really caring about? Oh, the injustice in this world. Oh, oh, for the sake of God, I need to rise up and address this and no longer sit back in Jesus' name. No, I'm just caring about myself. And that is in no way what is in sight in this verse. Again, there's something destructive about to be unleashed when we obey this verse. We better be discerning and careful about what that is. And it better be targeted not towards self-interest, but targeted very much towards helping someone to really be refined for the sake of Christ. Now, in husband and wife relationships, you know, there's a lot of blurred issues on those things. Here's one thing that I I think Debbie is like so exemplary in, in this manner, that when there is mess in my life that messes with her, she always does such a great job of making sure as she sits down and, and, and lets me know about it, that this is about me and my relationship with Jesus. This is about me and my own righteousness. Yeah, you know what? She, she, she was incredibly inconvenienced in the process of that, but that never comes up. And it never comes up. Yeah, but look what you did to me and to the kids and the inconvenience. And we didn't know we we're stuck. And none of that ever comes up. Only about my goodness, what it is that, that God really wants you to be in, in, in this role or in that responsibility that you've been given. And, and praise God, because she's such a great, great helper who can be angry, yet not sin. And, does, and she does not let the sun go down on the cause of her anger. <laughs> there's, there's no, well, the sun is down. God, can we just go to bed now, honey? There, no, if, if, 
if it has not been sufficiently rooted out, well then, my goodness. She takes seriously what, what Paul's going to say in a minute. You are children of light, he says in chapter 5, just a few verses later. You are children of light, therefore you should have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. But what should you rather do instead? Expose them. Expose them. Bring them to light. Deal with them thoroughly to help that other person really come to repentance. And here's hoping that, especially in our household issues, that we're helping one another come to repentance. And we're not just venting because you've inconvenienced me in, in some way or another. Angry like Jesus. But then he also says, in the same, in the same way, forgive like Jesus. Again, we've already kind of passed over some of these passages here that when, when we do expose, when we don't give the devil a foothold, when we bring people to a greater place, well, then the thief no longer steals. The, the person with unwholesome talk is, is no longer kind of spewing their vitriol or, or, or their um, kind of poisonous speech anywhere. Instead, what are they doing? The thief is now working and he's sharing and he's building up those who are in need. And, and what is the person who is kind of spewing out the, the bitterness instead of what are they doing now? Now, instead, the words from their mouth are building up, building up and encouraging, strengthening, giving one another hope that God has really given to them. But here's the, the other part is that even as we bring out this sin, we need to be prepared as we even bring it out. See what happens. Whoops. I'll get it back. You'll see. I think. Wow. You know what? Go ahead and just flip it over. Whoa, whoa, wait. No, I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. Uh, but as we, um, as we bring it out, as we bring out and expose whatever the issue is, be ready for something. Be ready for what? Be ready to forgive. And, you know, forgiveness, everybody loves forgiveness. C.S. Lewis says, we view Forgiveness is a very lovely thing until we have something to forgive. I know, very convicting, right? Okay, watch this. Bam! Uh, and we as Christians bear the name Christian if, if you do consider yourself a Christian and we take the name of Christ in this. C.S. Lewis also makes a very interesting point about this. I think it's a mere Christianity. But I remember reading this and really being floored by this idea. In that he says, what is the one thing that Jesus is known for that none of the other greats in the, the, the biblical lexicon are known for? What, what is it that Jesus is known for that Abraham doesn't have as his calling card? Or Isaac, or Jacob, or Moses, or David, or Samuel, or Elijah, or Elisha, or Gideon. You pick it. What is the one thing that Jesus has as his calling card, his unique hallmark, that none of those have? Forgiveness. And you as a Christian, what ought to be the one thing, as you follow Jesus, that ought to be your hallmark, your calling card? The one thing when people in the church, out of the church, wherever, look at you and realize, wow, I think I just encountered a Christian, a Christian. Because that's a person 
that really knows how to forgive. But it's easier to stay angry at somebody. It's easier to think that, you know what, I'm just trying to help them come to repentance. And are you forgiving like Jesus? Or are you just putting somebody in the doghouse? Husband, wife, kid, parent, friend, discipling partner, Bible talk leader. You pick it. Is there really this effort to build up the body of Christ both through the exposing beauty of anger and the fullness of complete forgiveness? When those things work together, it is an explosively wonderful combination that builds up the body of Christ. But and we have passages that are very difficult passages, too, that really come down strong from Jesus on the demands of forgiveness. Well, I mean, think about, for example, on the Sermon on the Mount, as he teaches us how to pray. And in the midst of that prayer, he says a lot of things. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, may your kingdom come, your will be done. But then he says, and also forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And then at the end, he gives a little commentary on that prayer that he teaches us all. And he doesn't comment on God being your father, although that's pretty profound. Or the kingdom. That's a mind-blowing concept. What is the one thing he decides I better give you a little bit more teaching on? Forgiveness. And what does he say? If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. And then he flips it. And this is so frightening. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. That's not all. A little later in, in the same Gospel of Matthew, in 18, he gives a very clear illustration of the power of forgiveness and the demands of forgiveness. He talks about a guy who ends up in prison and owes somewhere near a trillion dollars. But yet the, the man who, who has him in prison says to him, you know what, I have mercy on you, and I'm going to forgive all your debts, go in peace. And the minute that that man walks out, he runs into somebody that he had known, and that person owes him a few thousand dollars. Now, it's not a small amount of money, but it's also not a trillion dollars. And you know what I really appreciate about that story? Is that that, that guy wasn't told that he was too big to fail. Never mind. But anyway... But that, but in that $10,000 of debt, rather than being so affected to the core of his soul, that now what infuses all of his sensibilities is a covenant of grace that has just been made with him, and that he now lives in and walks in, but the first steps that he takes, he completely obliterates that covenant, and he grabs the man that owes him the 10000 shakes him down, throws him into debtor's prison... Until he would pay back everything that he would owe. And, and as the, kind of the end of the story, the, the original person that, that had that man in prison, kind of the overall sovereign, grabs him and says, so this is the way you want to play it, huh? Well, you know, to say another way that Jesus says, as the measure that you used, I'm going to use the same measure on you. You want to, you want to live in a covenant like that? Well then, welcome to it. Enjoy this covenant. You go ahead into, into prison now. Until you can pay back everything that you have. 
And, and it ends with, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. And, you know, and so here's the, the difficult too. Is, okay, we've been talking about grace. So am I going to hell? You know, because my husband's in the doghouse. Yes, you are. No. <laughs> but it is an indication. It really, it's a very clear indication. If, if you're not excited to forgive, that you are not excited that you've been forgiven. Because when you stay angry at somebody, when you hold a grudge, when you refuse to forgive, it actually makes you feel so righteous. It makes you feel so wronged. It even can make you feel so self-pitying, so self-centered, so self-righteous, so self-self-self, and you become more like Satan than like Jesus. It also makes the other person a mere caricature of themselves. And so let's, let, let's say in, uh, in, in, in such a case that um, uh, Brad, Brad lies to me. And, you know, and I hold that against Brad. And, and then you know, people wonder like, hey, what, well, why, why the friction between you and Brad? And I say, well, because Brad's just such a liar. And, and then no matter what it is that Brad says, I may just kind of say as an aside to someone, I wonder if that's the truth. Because that guy's a liar. What I've done is I've taken him and I've turned him into a two-dimensional caricature. of who, And he may have lied. But that's not who Brad is. That was a moment in his life. But I've torn him down. And, and I've, I've made him something that he's not. And I'm trying to view him through the eyes that Jesus does not view him. He is Jesus' beloved child. But, but I, am, I am taking him and I am basically blaspheming him. Uh, all, all throughout, and, and really kind of uh, accentuating and making him only the, the one negative that, that I've focused on. It's a very dangerous thing when we decide not to forgive. And there's absolutely no better way to tell whether or not you have a real relationship with God on the basis of grace than whether you forgive. If the covenant of grace that changed your life has not radically transformed you from the top of your head to the tip of your toes, where everything now is really flavored and colored and shaded by this grace experience of your life, well then probably you're okay with an obedience covenant. And maybe deep down, you may say to yourself, yeah, yeah, maybe others need a grace covenant, but I think I'd do just fine in an obedience covenant. I'll do just fine in a performance covenant. I'll pull it off. I'm going to do the right thing. You watch me work. I'm going to do that. But, but folks who tend to kind of harbor that idea, although they won't ever admit to it, also tend to be the ones that have that expectation of others in their relationship with one another. And it becomes an indication, therefore. And so it's not like, you know what, I put Debbie in the doghouse. Ooh, I better watch the way I drive to West Virginia today. Because if I get T-boned and, and I've got her in the doghouse right now, I think I've got a straight ticket to hell. I don't, I don't think... And, and, and here's, here's kind of a better way to kind of look at this. You know, because the Bible does say if we deliberately keep on sinning, 
after we've come to a knowledge of the truth. But if I'm actually happy about her being in the doghouse, and I want to keep her in that doghouse, and I like the benefits of her being in the doghouse, she's always trying to kind of make up to me when she's in the doghouse. And I've got power over her when she's in the doghouse. Oh my goodness, if I get to that place, I have become more like Satan than like Jesus. And can I reject and fall away from the grace of God? You bet I can. The minute that I think, you know what? This is not such a bad, a bad relationship right now. I got the power. Under my thumb, the girl who once had it made. It's Rolling Stones. A parable that Jesus tells a little later on of the sheep and the goats. And, and, and there he says, all right, all of you sheep, all of you goats going to hell, going to heaven. And here's why sheep, you did right. You saw the poor person. You saw those in need. You, you comforted them. You fed them. You took care of them. Goats, you saw those needs out there and you turned a blind eye to it. Welcome to hell. And, and are you going to hell in that parable because you walked past the person with the tin cup? That, that's not the covenant that God has laid out. But he, go, Jesus goes on to say, because the way that you treated the least of my brothers is the way that you treated me. That's what Matthew 25 concludes with. That because you didn't open your heart to the poor... It is evidence that you don't really want to open your heart to me. And if you don't have that relationship with me, well, then you've chosen not to have a relationship. And likewise, you can look at it in the same way. If you've not forgiven, if you've chosen not to forgive your brother, your spouse, your child, your parent, whatever that situation is, if you've chosen to close your heart to them, well, then you've not allowed me to melt your heart with my forgiveness. You've not wanted to be able to have a relationship based on forgiveness, but, but based on kind of having a little one-upsmanship on, on somebody else along the way. And so you've rejected the whole idea of covenant that, that we really wanted to be able to have one with another. So why such a big deal with forgiveness? Well, that's the big deal. That's the big deal. How is it that you want to have a relationship with Jesus? And if you've not been blown away by who you were when he decided to to take all and die for you and bear your, your defiling mess, well, then you've never really appreciated the power of the gospel of grace. And it's time to go back and, and, and preach the gospel to yourself again and again and again. And make sure that you don't slip half step by half step into a place where you're okay with holding stuff over somebody else. And, and I think this one applies most in, in our marital relationships. Let's just be real. Like all of you are sitting here, you're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm so glad he's preaching that because, man, my husband, he's, he, he needs to forgive me right now. Or, or vice versa, right? I mean, there's all that going on and you're hoping that you're going to have a conversation afterwards. And how do you know if you're unforgiving? Well, then, you know what? Ask your spouse. She, she or he will tell you. And, and you know what? I think you tend to put me in the doghouse and keep me there. And you know what? 
I tend to think, and I, I know it's a self-serving by me saying this, I tend to think that you actually like it. Well, listen to that. Don't get defensive at that. This is gold. This is the exposing work of, of the Holy Spirit in these situations. Own this, because this could be our very breakthrough for me, for you, for whomever, the very breakthrough that suddenly allows all of this tit-for-tat to melt away and for the grace of God to then be able to be expressed unhindered in our lives. Sometimes we need a little bit of that angry and do not sin to get it exposed so that we can get back to this place of glorious peace and love and encouragement that comes one from another. And finally, right after having said that, back to Ephesians 4. He then concludes with, Be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And I'm not going to belabor this because we preach this on Easter. And as we walk in love, it is walking in and out day by day, with kindness, compassion, forgiveness, one for another. There is no rage or bitterness. There's none of that any longer. And it's not, it, it is not, as, as I mentioned on Easter, it is not doing a cartwheel in love that we're called to do. Anybody can do a cartwheel, if you could do a cartwheel, every now and again. Anybody can go for a day and build a house for Habitat for Humanity. Anybody can, can go for a week and, and, and help out on a mission trip to Honduras. But if that is not the mark of your everyday in and out walking, because that's what he says. He says, walk in love. Just as Christ loved you, just as Christ walked by Zacchaeus and said, Zacchaeus, come on down, i got to be at your house. Just as Jesus walked by the, the, the funeral procession with the mother with her only son and stopped and changed her entire life. Just as Jesus stopped as the woman who was bent over by, by, by that disability and lifted her up and changed her entire life. Just as Jesus stopped and touched the leper, touched him, man who hadn't been touching who knows how many years, changed his entire life. Just as Jesus couldn't walk by anybody without loving and giving every single time. It's, it's not the kind of the one-off spectacular event. You rise up to the occasion just when it needs it. It's just your everyday cadence. It's your pace. It's just what marks you as just a normal course of who you are, that you're all about selfless service. You're all about building up. You're all about encouragement. You're all about exhorting one another in Christ. You're all about selflessness of love and the very love that Jesus loved for you. And so if we're going to be the body of Christ, well, right now we need to be thinking about how do I click in? And, and if, if there's something that you know you need to be doing, whether it's me helping to expose, maybe forgiving to shore up some, some situations so that we have the ligaments and sinews to be the body of Christ, or maybe it's just selfless service of loving. You know what? Let's not let all of these scriptures go by. The Holy Spirit's not going to subside the head. That hurt to be able to really get to the place where we're, we're meant to be. My goodness, let's not let the Spirit fall to the ground right now. Whichever one of these areas is one that you want to grab onto, don't let this go by without us grabbing on and no longer being in any way a 20-80, 20% of the people doing 80% of the work, but, but really making sure that we are part of this solution to build up the body of Christ and be who Hampton Roads needs us to be. 
We are God's plan. Let's not in any way kind of take a back seat to this, but engage fully and see Jesus glorified. Amen. Amen.